Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. In this series, Safe Lives are shining a spotlight on people affected by domestic abuse who are also experiencing mental health problems. As a domestic abuse worker, I had some experience of advocating to mental health services on behalf of my clients, but I didn't fully realise how difficult it can be to access the right care and support when you yourself are suffering from a mental health problem. 18 months ago, I suffered with a rare condition called postpartum psychosis following the birth of my daughter. What then followed was an exhausting year of having to push for the right response and treatment from the various professionals around me. I was lucky, my symptoms were mild and short-lived, and I had support from my partner and family, but it was very easy to see the gaps and frailties in the mental health system. I met up with Catherine and Shakti, who both work in the domestic abuse field, and who both have their own lived experience of mental health problems. Both Catherine and Shakti had fathers who perpetrated domestic abuse and tracked their mental health issues back to living with this from an early age. I wanted to find out more about their journey and their experience of accessing mental health support and to ask them what advice they have for IDFAs who are trying to get the right service for their clients. Catherine and Shakti, welcome to Spotlights and thank you so much for agreeing to take part in this podcast. Um, I know that both mental health and domestic abuse are difficult topics to talk about and agreeing to do this wasn't the easiest decision for you. So I wanted to start by asking you, why do you think that it is still difficult to be open about mental health? Um, There's still a lot of stigma around it and a lack of understanding opening up to people about your mental health can leave you feeling really vulnerable and people don't always respond in a way that makes you feel comfortable Um, and I think I used to feel like there was no point in telling anyone as well because it wouldn't change anything but now I've realised talking about it can actually be really positive. Um, And I think a lot has changed over the last couple of years and it's getting easier to say you've had mental health problems but it's still really hard I had all the worries you hear about that people wouldn't think it was a real illness, that I was exaggerating, or that people would think I couldn't do my job properly. I've been really lucky to have the support of close friends and family and a very understanding manager, but I still kept the majority of what was happening to me secret as I I didn't want to worry people or have them think of me as not capable. So given what you've said, why did you decide you wanted to speak out? What, What was it that motivated you to talk about your experiences in this podcast? I think it's really important to speak out about it if you can. One of the things I found really useful from my counselling sessions was hearing that other people have had the same symptoms and responses as me. In life you kind of want to be special and stand out, but I found when it came to my mental health I was comforted to hear that this happens to other people. Your responses are normal and there is the possibility of getting better. I think the more we talk openly about these things, the easier it will be for people to seek help and get the right support. Um, And it's a bit corny, but a couple of times I've heard be the person you needed when you were younger. Um, One thing I needed when I was younger was to feel like talking about mental health was normal and healthy. So I think it's important that we talk about it openly. But I also want people to know that you can be unwell for a really long time and still have a good life. Because lots of people struggle with their mental health for years and obviously being completely well is ideal but it's not always a realistic goal and I've spent a lot of time feeling hopeless because I haven't been completely well when actually I've been doing so much better than before. 
I can really relate to wanting to know that your responses are normal and that other people have been through the same thing. Um, I remember for me, it was such a relief when I finally got to see a specialist who could, who could tell me that. The context of my mental health issue is obviously very different from yours. It came on very suddenly and it had a clear cause and I was able to pinpoint a time frame in which I became unwell. You both described living as children and young women with domestic abuse for a long time. Did you did that make it harder for you to recognise that you were experiencing anxiety and depression or were there key moments for you when you realised that this was an illness that you were suffering from? Uh, it definitely made it harder for me. Um, as far as I can remember, I've always struggled with my mental health. Even my early memories are full of times when I was incredibly anxious, hated myself, self-harmed. Um, it took me years to realise my experience wasn't normal, especially because my mum and brother have had persistent mental health problems too. It sort of feels like some of our symptoms are part of our, part of our personalities almost. So for you, Shakti, although you had these really awful levels of anxiety and distress, it was consistent with what others around you were displaying. So it felt like something that was just well accepted and wasn't really spoken about. Was that the same for you, Catherine? Um, from being 11 years old, I felt like I suffered depression and some anxiety. But even at that young age, it was obvious to me what the cause was. Something would happen at home and that would trigger a reaction in me. This continued throughout my teenage years and early 20s, and then for a few years I was pretty stable. I never sought help during this time as I felt like it was pretty obvious what triggered my bouts of depression, and there wasn't really anything that could be done. It has been as my own children have got older that my mental health deteriorated to the point that I felt I couldn't cope on my own anymore. I was having constant obsessive suicidal thoughts and horrendous physical symptoms such as constant aching in my body and clenching of my teeth. I got to a point where I didn't think I could cope and I didn't understand why it was happening when I'd been so stable for so long. Something you both said is that there have been times that you wouldn't have linked your anxiety and depression to domestic abuse. Can you explain a bit more about why that is? Yeah, I definitely don't think I would have identified domestic abuse as the root of my mental health problems in the past. I felt like a fraud um, because domestic abuse seemed the least of the problems I was experiencing with everything else that was going on at home. But I now realise that the domestic abuse created the environment in which the other traumatic events could happen and that without that domestic abuse I'm not sure that me and my brothers would have been so at risk of, of the other um, traumas and abuse that, that happened to us. Um, I think part of the problem is the language that's used about children witnessing domestic abuse. I felt like I wasn't a victim because I actually, um, because I wasn't the one in the relationship, but actually I experienced that abuse too, not in the same way as my mum, but I was constantly frightened, used as a tool to control, and I always tried to take on the role of trying to be a protector. Yeah, so many people say children witness or are exposed to domestic abuse, but I feel like that completely diminishes our experiences. A child in that environment is not passively observing everything that's going on. The abuse in my home affected every aspect of my life. You know, when my mum was isolated, so were me and my brother. When he gaslighted her, he gaslighted us too. And it's not just a lack of recognition of the negative impact, but 
also of the strategies that my brother and I have to help keep us safe. And we seem to be gradually moving away from this in the sector, but there's still a focus on adult victims. And it's understandable in some ways, but it makes it feel silly to say that what I went through deserves the same recognition or that it had such a, such a significant impact on me. But um, I think as a very young child, I might have linked the abuse to my mental health problems, but one of my coping mechanisms as a teenager was to focus very strongly on the positive things about my father. So I convinced myself he was amazing because then I felt safer being around him. I couldn't handle acknowledging the impact he had on me while I was still seeing him that often. And I think it was only a year or two after I moved away from home that I could really recognise it again. Yeah, and as I said before, my responses seemed like normal responses to what I had experienced. There'd be a trigger and then I'd have a few weeks of depression, but then I'd be fine again. It's only in the last four years or so that I felt my responses aren't making sense anymore. And that's when I started to feel like I have mental health issues. My behaviour became more manic and I was taking risks that could have permanent consequences. I just couldn't understand what had changed and why this was happening to me now. I think what you're both describing is really important for how we respond to children. Just because a child isn't showing what we might consider like signs of fear and trauma when they're still in that situation and living with the perpetrator or having contact with them, that doesn't mean that they're not experiencing harm. It just might not be that clear at that time. Shakti, you've given a clear example of cognitive dissonance when we adjust our perspective to try and make it fit with what's happening um, and it just wasn't possible for you to do anything other than convince yourself that all was well when you were just having to try and get through each contact with your father. Thinking back to those early experiences of domestic abuse, how much awareness do you think there was amongst professionals you came into contact with about the impact of the domestic abuse upon you? Did you feel as children your mental health was something they were considering at all? Uh, the only professionals I came into contact with were at school, but I don't think most of them realised what was going on, and none of them ever spoke to me about my home life. Um, when I was in year one, there was one lunchtime assistant who I think knew something was wrong, but I don't think she had any idea what to do about it. Some of the teachers definitely noticed me being really anxious in the classroom, but I think they usually just found it quite annoying. Uh, and because I did well at school, they never seemed to worry about me. I definitely don't remember feeling like they considered it might be something to do with my mental health. And the same, I didn't feel at the time that the impact of the domestic abuse was considered in terms of us children at all, and this was back in the 1990s. I also think I presented as a very typical, hard-working, overachieving child, so I don't think anybody had any concerns. If they had concerns, it would have been about my brother who was starting to take drugs and getting involved in crime and dropping out of school. But even then, I don't think anybody connected it to what was going on at home. The police were round at our house so often that I knew them all by name, but I don't remember a social worker ever being involved, even though it, quite often it was us children who were calling the police. I hope things are different now and that there's a bit more professional curiosity in these situations. I I think it's really significant to reflect on the fact that, you know, you both were not presenting in the classroom, showing behaviours that might 
tick the boxes of kind of stereotypical acting out because something really bad's going on at home. Like actually you've described being keeping your head down, quite quiet, reserved, overachieving. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting like learning point that children are not necessarily going to act out when things are going on. So um, given what you said about professionals, how easy was it to talk to family and friends about what was happening? I didn't speak to anyone apart from my mum and brother until I was a teenager. When I did try to talk to my friends at school, they just really didn't understand. Some of them laughed at the things I told them. Uh, My mum and I have talked a lot about it, but honestly, I tried to hide the worst things because I didn't want to upset her. I'm sure she did the same with me as well. Um, but, it's e- but it's easier to talk about how I feel with my mum and friends nowadays and I can talk to my counsellor too but I do still hide things from everyone you you don't want to burden people with everything even when it's their job yeah I, I agree I really felt I couldn't tell people about what was happening I started self-harming when I was 12 and the few people who knew I did that hated it so much that I just tried to hide it from them I tried to protect my friends and particularly my mum from any of my issues because I just felt she had enough to worry about without worrying about me. I think I've gone through most of my life being very secretive to try and protect people. It's only now that I've started to talk about it and even now I find it really difficult to tell people when I'm starting to feel anxious or depressed because the depression and fear just takes over and I worry that I'll never be better. I think from a professional point of view, if professionals can just show that they understand, not be shocked and help clients understand that their behaviours are normal, that would help. There's a lot of secrecy, shame and being worried about what other people will think when you're experiencing mental health issues, isn't there? And that's got such huge parallels with domestic abuse and why it's hard for people to disclose. I was just thinking then as well that the the difficulty about anxiety and depression is that it's only on the days that you're doing okay you'd be able to pick up the phone and talk to someone about it and actually the days that you're really unwell are the days where that's just not possible to do so you're never able to see your GP on the day that it's worse or you're never able to ring your friend when you really need to have your friend ring you mm-hmm. um, it's just an irony of the, the, the illness this is a big question but thinking about IDVAs and other professionals such as teachers, doctors, social workers who are coming into contact with children who've had very similar experiences to both of you. What would you want them to do differently? Let's say your top two things you'd like to see. I think help parents understand the impact of the abuse on children so they can support and understand their children's reactions and to put some specific support in place for the child. I think there needs to be a realisation that children who experience trauma are probably going to be impacted at some point in their lives. And even if they seem really healthy and well-adjusted, that doesn't mean they don't need support. I recently read a 2016 review of 175 serious case reviews, which found that before the serious case review, many of the children had had previously presented as healthy, happy and well-adjusted children, and so had not met the thresholds for support. Yeah, everyone working with children needs to be confident in spotting signs and asking whether everything is okay at home, but also to know, like you were saying, that not all children experiencing abuse at home will look the same, Mm. they'll all look really different from each other. Um, 
I was way too frightened to tell anyone what was happening and had no idea how to even start that conversation. Um, and like, even as a young child, you can feel the stigma so strongly. I just didn't know how people would react if I told them. But I think I might have opened up if someone at school had actually asked me. Um, I also, I also think we need to recognise the agency of children experiencing domestic abuse and not patronise them because they have a deep understanding of the dynamics of abuse and will probably already have coping strategies that you can help them build upon. We need to give them a sense of control over their own support and although a parent might be able to offer insight into how to best support a child, we need to acknowledge that the children themselves are the experts in their own experiences. Jumping forward to your more recent experiences and mental health problems, something I know we've all experienced is feeling at times that we've not been unwell enough to get the help that we needed. It's a really bizarre situation where you'd think that it'd be a huge positive to not need to be seen by higher tier mental health services or not need to be hospitalised. Like surely that's a good thing, no one wants to be in hospital. But actually what we've talked about previously is that you can be feeling very, very unwell. But if you're holding it together and you're seen to be doing well enough, then you can start to ask yourself how bad does this need to be before someone will step in and help? Shakti, I remember you've got a particularly shocking example of this. Well, I was having a really difficult time in my third year of uni and went to the student counselling service. Um, in my first session, I cried all the way through. In the second, I didn't cry. And at the end, the counsellor said I seemed much better that week, so she didn't think I needed to come back. Mm. I clearly wasn't okay, and that was the first time I saw any kind of professional support tell me I was better at that time was so bizarre and made me feel like I didn't deserve any more support and I, I'm pretty high functioning so people hardly ever realise I'm struggling unless I tell them but whenever things start to get worse I will usually just put my head in the sand and I'm actually less likely to talk about it. I know, I know it doesn't make any sense, but I think a lot of high-functioning people have a similar thing and it's important for professionals to understand that. Yeah. I really felt that professionals were comparing me to their other clients and saying, well, you're doing fine. I have some clients who've never had a job or can barely dress themselves. One psychologist actually said that to me. I couldn't get him to understand that for me... I wasn't doing well and that surely my access to support shouldn't be based on how bad his other clients were but on the fact that I had been fine and now I felt like I could end up losing everything, my relationship and my job if I didn't get some help. I was really good at holding it together externally but inside I felt I was going insane. I couldn't control my thoughts, I couldn't sleep and was in constant pain or feeling like I couldn't breathe. I got to a point where I didn't think I could carry on and was scared I was going to accidentally end up dead because I was putting myself in such risky situations. After one particularly eventful weekend where my partner ended up having to call the police because I was missing, the woman from the mental health team just asked me if I thought what had happened was down to drinking. I couldn't get her to understand that yes, I had been drinking, but the reason I had was because of my mental health issues, not the other way around. It's that difference between you knowing that other people have been through similar, which can be helpful, but not feeling like you have to compete with others to receive a service. 
it's it's just not comforting to be told you're not doing as badly as someone else when you're already feeling totally at your own breaking point. And I think the risk is when it's something so invisible, you start trying to make it visible to others, which usually means some form of self-harm. And I don't mean you're consciously making a decision to externalise your suffering in this way, but it but it's just very common. And as our suicidal thoughts, I know that supporting someone who is self-harming or having suicidal thoughts can be really frightening and daunting. So do you have any insights that might help people listening understand? Uh, sometimes my self-harm has been signalling, but a lot of the time I just want something bad to happen because I feel like it will at least justify my poor mental health. And I think that relates back to minimising what I've been through, but also to do with not knowing how to get better. At least if it was a physical injury, it would be easy to explain to someone else and to get treatment for it. But often, like, I won't actually injure myself, I just want there to be physical pain to distract from emotional things. Or when my self-worth is particularly low, I might think I deserve to be hurt. I haven't really been suicidal for a long time, but sometimes my suicidal thoughts are similar, like, I deserve to die or that the world would be better without me. Other times I have honestly just wanted my life to end. And, like, other times it's just intrusive thoughts I don't even want to carry out and that's just me other people's experiences are going to be completely different but I think if professionals want to learn more I'd recommend finding a local self-injury support charity and looking at their resources maybe even seeing if you could arrange some sort of training exchange or workshop or just some other way of sharing knowledge. Uh, One of the most frightening things I remember about being unwell was not being able to control my thoughts and really just not knowing what I might do So I remember being asked in a very standard kind of risk assessment way about whether I was suicidal and me thinking, I literally don't know how to answer this question as I don't recognize myself. My mind is racing out of control. You know, I I don't think I want to kill myself, but I keep having these thoughts and I just have no idea what what I'm capable of or what I might do. I think that, I mean, both of those really resonate with me. Um, and I think that, yeah, that idea that I didn't really know who I was anymore and, you know, especially in the last few years um, and just that feeling that I might end up doing something to myself accidentally because I was just taking such taking such massive risks and, you know, lying down in the road and things and I didn't ever want to die but I also couldn't cope with being alive anymore and I just, I suppose, yeah, I like was... Um, what Shakti said I really just really needed to get some help and that almost seemed it wasn't a conscious decision but that seemed like maybe I'll get some help maybe someone will realize how how bad this is for me now I think it yeah sometimes it's not that you want to die it's that you don't want to carry on if this is what life will be like and the most logical place it seems your brain jumps to is where you could end your life and then that just becomes like a really intrusive thought that's difficult to shake off at times yeah something I know we've got different perspectives on is diagnosis and whether a label is helpful in hindsight if I've been seen by the right people and I've been given PP as a diagnosis from the start although it's a horrible diagnosis I think it would have meant I could have accessed a level of support and specialist services that just wasn't available to me otherwise. So for me, I could really see the benefit in receiving a diagnosis. I felt like I desperately needed a diagnosis to help me understand why this was happening. 
and make me feel like I had a genuine illness. I felt like if they told me I had bipolar, at least I could get some treatment and get better. In the end, I didn't get a diagnosis and that has now become less important to me. My counsellor explained that there's nothing wrong with me and that my responses are completely normal reactions to the trauma I suffered as a child. And this is actually pretty similar to what I think the original psychologist was trying to say, but somehow she did it in a much, much more empowering way. I've since been reading Professor van der Kolk's book on childhood trauma and its effects on the body. And he calls for a recognised diagnosis of development trauma disorder. And I think that would be really helpful. I've actually tried to avoid diagnosis, but I think I only really have that option because I've been lucky I haven't wanted to access support that's dependent on the diagnosis. Um, I, I worry that it might affect how GPs treat me in the future if they see certain things on my medical records because... I know people with diagnoses of things like EPI and PTSD, things associated with depression and anxiety, who've felt that their GPs haven't taken their health complaints seriously after they've been diagnosed. And a hospital consultant once even recommended that she referred me for the right treatment without telling my GP what she'd technically diagnosed me with for that reason. And that's not to say that it's all GPs, because some of them are brilliant, but I'd I'd also like to, I'd prefer to be treated holistically rather than according to a diagnostic manual as well. Um, but clearly, the way the system works means that not everyone has that luxury. So, um, thinking about practice then, and helping people think about what would be helpful and things to avoid... When I was unwell, I had quite a few experiences of professionals giving me inaccurate or unhelpful advice. And I remember asking you both if you'd had a switch off moment, and you both had. Um, what we were talking about is a moment where a professional says something so insensitive or acts in a way that you instantly lose all trust in their capabilities. And you think, okay, well, this just isn't the service for me. And you can feel the shutters coming down. Um, and just thinking a bit about that, um, I'm with my experience, I feel like it is so obviously a wrong thing to do that it can't even be classed as good advice for Idvers because I can never imagine in a million years an Idvers going to make this mistake. But um, for me, what happened um, was I was sent um, for a service for CBT and it was the only option that was available to me on the NHS. So I felt I had to give it a go despite the fact that... Um, my therapist actually laughed when I said to her that I was fairly confident I had suffered with PP. She thought that was basically impossible because she had her own um, idea of PP and what the symptoms would be and my symptoms just didn't fit with the idea that she had. And she had that view which she was entitled to but having someone actually laugh at you when you're talking about something really painful, it made my engagement much more superficial. And I thought I'd just have to get through these sessions. Can you share with us what your switch-off moments were? Uh, the first that jumps to mind is when I tried to explain to that university counsellor, I'd realised I didn't love my father and had no positive feelings towards him. And she immediately said she didn't think that was true. I think she was just trying to reassure me, but it was so frustrating, it... It just didn't seem worth telling her much more at that point if she wasn't going to accept what I was telling her anyway. 
and I'd just come to terms with that thought myself and hadn't expressed it to anyone before and she just shut me down um, but I also struggled with being asked for details of the abuse I've experienced when I haven't volunteered that information um, like I'm comfortable giving a certain level of detail and I think sometimes it's relevant like if you're doing a dash or something but like for my circumstances and the times that people have asked me it's never really seemed relevant to recount most of it and it can sometimes feel like people are asking out of some sort of morbid fascination when they don't explain why they're asking it just it just changes how I see myself in that moment from a person trying to get better to a story for someone else's interest mm. yeah I I think with almost every professional I had this switch off moment uh, the first time was when that psychologist compared my experience with others and basically said I was doing really well and should be proud of how much I've achieved which I am but it didn't help me for him to say that at that time the other time again was when the worker asked if I thought what had happened was due to drinking um, and I just felt like um, I wasn't going to engage with that service. There was just no way that they were going to understand what I was experiencing. And then another time was when the psychologist said I needed to refer myself to IAPT. Um, and at the time, I had real problems talking on the phone. And I just felt like additional barriers were being put in my way. And then when I did get seen by that team, they went through the whole assessment and then at the end said I wasn't suitable because my problems were due to experiencing sexual abuse as a child and they didn't deal with childhood sexual abuse. I then, they then said I had to refer myself to the local rape crisis centre. I really couldn't believe that I was being told after pretty much a year of being assessed multiple times by different NHS mental health teams that there was nothing they could do for me and I would have to refer myself to a charity who don't even receive any funds from the NHS and are funded entirely by charitable donations. It's just so unfair to put you through having to keep retelling your story to different people when they should have known from the outset that that was not there wasn't a referral route that yeah. they were going to have to come up with you know uh, they were going to signpost you on. Um, well, I think when I listen to you both and reflecting on my own experiences, is that if I were supporting someone as a domestic abuse worker and they disengaged with a mental health service, I'd be asking a lot more questions about what didn't work for them and unpicking it a bit. Because when a client disengages, it doesn't mean that they don't want support. And you often hear in different multi-agency meetings about, well, this person's failed to engage and they're not engaging. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think that, well, maybe the support that they've been referred to in reality wasn't that supportive and we have to unpick that a bit. Um, so uh, as well as those experiences, I know we've also had some brilliant support. So what examples of great practice have you experienced that you'd want to highlight? Although I was really angry that I felt I'd been dumped by statutory services onto a charity, the charity was actually amazing, as we would expect. The counselling I received was cut short due to funding issues and my counsellor leaving, but the sessions that I did have really helped. She really understood the impact of childhood trauma and the effects for me were unbelievable. I went from having nightmares almost every night to them completely disappearing and the pain I had experienced also went. They were great, I just wish that they received sustainable funding because the NHS are referring clients through to them via the back door by asking us to refer ourselves. Um, 
also uh, I was really lucky because my partner took on all the ringing round and chasing up to make sure I got some support I just wonder how many vulnerable people who might not like speaking on the phone like me would actually refer ourselves that support that you got from the rape crisis centre sounds amazing and but also yeah I definitely relied on support from my friends and my partner to help me access support from a professional um but the things that spring to mind for me in terms of good practice aren't really anything to do with practice as such it's it's more like when people respond to you with genuine acceptance and understanding and empathy especially in the early stages when it can all feel really overwhelming you know a robot idfa with training wouldn't be the same would it no Someone being human and understanding is really key. Uh, I have to say in my case, the perinatal mental health team were amazing. They felt like this lighthouse when I was completely floundering around. They understood, they got it. But the thing that struck me is that what I really appreciated were the things they did that were not actually beyond the skill level of most professionals. So they listened and they really empathised with how I was feeling. They also were the only people to say look, this period of time where your baby's really short and you can't get these months back, so it's absolute priority that we support you. That validating that my mental health was important, that I was important, well, that's something we can all do for people that we're supporting. And the other thing I found was how human they were. I met with Joe, the psychiatrist, and I anticipated it would be a really daunting, medicalised conversation. And I actually did quite a lot of sort of prep for it and was gearing myself up to sort of, um, you know, having to have this really intense assessment with a psychiatrist. And actually, it was the absolute opposite. It was like talking to a friend. And some of the key things she said were about that they would put me in the driving seat of any care plans, that they would listen to my concerns, what I wanted and what I needed, and they would take the lead from me. And I just remember how respected and listened to I felt. And that's just everything we talk about in terms of being a, a good idva, empowering and supporting. So people listening to this podcast, the services supporting survivors, the multi-agency forums who are action planning and um, commissioners who are thinking about gaps in services, what would be the main messages you'd want them to walk away with? I think it's important that professionals are able to be honest with their clients about the fact that being away from a terrible situation doesn't mean everything will automatically be better and it's not like professional support is necessarily going to fix you. Uh, like People should be prepared for the fact that they might be coping with mental health issues for the rest of their life, but they should also hear that life can be brilliant in spite of that. If someone tells you that they're unwell, it doesn't mean they're weak, unreliable or having a miserable time, they can't cope. We just have to break the stigma around mental health. And as, as individuals, but also as professionals, we should be able to talk about our own mental health without being pitied or patronised. But the same goes for children and young people that have experienced abuse. We need to stop seeing them as helpless and start recognising and respecting them as adaptive, resilient individuals and commissioners have to make sure that services are doing that as well. Yeah, I agree. And I just I suppose the main message I would like professionals to come away with is that, you know, the children who are in those families where they're supporting uh, the victims of domestic abuse 
they may present as fine and, and coping really well, but I just, I suppose I'd like them to have more professional curiosity, ask more about the children, um, and just understand that it's really likely that those children will be impacted at some point in their lives by what they're experiencing at home. Uh, and it might not come out for many years and it will affect everyone really differently. Um, mm. But that if we can just get that support in place earlier and I suppose look at the child victims as well and put that support in place. And I think I know that services really struggle with funding for support for children. It's one of the areas that gets like the least funding and they, re they rely on donations rather than um, government funding. So I just think that needs to change now and we need to get those services in place for children otherwise the, these impacts are just going to be felt for years down the line. And with the services intervening early I think we often we often refer to them as recovery services and I would do that as well but actually thinking about it from my own perspective as an individual as a survivor recovery doesn't make sense to me because there's nothing to recover from before the abuse because I grew up with it. That's that's how it always was. And I think there is, there's just some language things where we need to think about whether they apply to everyone. And it's not just children either. It's if you're an adult survivor, but you also grew up in a place with domestic abuse, then recovery might not really mean anything to you either. Yeah. Um, like words like rebuild, things like that, it just doesn't quite ring true. Yeah. I think language is so important and we don't, we kind of just use the words that we're used to using. We don't really think about what they mean to all the different groups of people. But I definitely agree because I think the use of domestic abuse victim um, and it always applying to, a, to an adult victim, that is one of the barriers that I felt like I couldn't say that this is what I've experienced because that you know that's what made me feel like a fraud so I think it is really important. Yeah I still feel I have to do the whole sentence like a child that experienced domestic abuse it doesn't I don't quite feel like I fit the definition of victim in the sector so I agree. It's really interesting isn't it how that language just becomes so um, commonplace and you don't always get um, uh, or you don't think about stopping and thinking about what you're saying you just adapt this language without really examining it so I think that's a really important point thank you so much for doing this podcast um, it, it's hard and painful stuff to talk about so and just so important that we do so I'm really grateful for you deciding to share your experiences in this way so thank you very much thank you thank you